0: My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds and keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I'm so excited to be joined in the virtual Just a Mom studio by Phyllis Fagel. Hi, Phyllis.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you for, for being on the Just a Mom podcast. And Phyllis is in the Washington, D.C. area, and I was introduced to her um, through a mutual uh, acquaintance with the Blue Valley Educational Foundation here in my neck of the woods in suburban Kansas City. And Phyllis is an author, a journalist, she is a school counselor, a licensed professional counselor, and I don't know how you'd have time to do anything else, really.
1: (laughs) Yes, it's uh, definitely a juggling
0: act. So, so... Today, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but Phyllis is actually coming to the Kansas City area um, in a few weeks. She's doing an event through the Blue Valley Educational Foundation and the Madam President Organization, and that event is on Wednesday, September the 13th. It is sold out, I understand. So I just checked yesterday that it is sold out. So uh, unfortunately, if you live in the Kansas City area, there, there are no more tickets available to that event. But I would encourage you, no matter where you live, to listen to this episode, because Phyllis has... Has some incredible insights into kids and challenges and mental health and resiliency and has written some really awesome books and I've, I've read one of them and she has another one coming out shortly that we will talk about so Phyllis again thank you for taking the time to be here to to just help talk to parents and caregivers about raising kids
1: happy happy to talk about all of those subjects
0: So I mentioned a little bit about your professional life and what you do. Tell us a little bit about that and your background and and why you choose to do the work that you do.
1: Uh, That's a great question. And actually, I never would have guessed that I'd be a school counselor. If you asked me at 18, I would have looked at you like you were nuts. It was just not on my radar at all. And I actually worked in journalism for a long time before I went back to school to be a counselor. And as it so happens, because it was a second career, when I started working in a middle school, it was the same time that I had two of my kids entering middle school. And that's not the easiest time to be a parent, and it is not the easiest age group to counsel either, and my experience had been in elementary and high school. So I did what any kind of nerdy person would do, and went looking for all of the research and information that might help me be a better parent, be a better counselor, and it really didn't exist because people tended to write about either elementary school and early literacy stuff, or that transition to college after high school. And so I decided to combine my skills and start writing the kind of books and articles that I felt like I needed as both a parent and a journalist and a counselor.
0: So that's something that we have in common. Well, several things that we have in common that we have journalism backgrounds. We never thought in a million years that this would be what we would be doing. And we are doing it because there is a a hole, a lack of resources, and we wanted to do something to help. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's kind of cool that we have those things in common. So you you talked a little bit about why your specific interest in middle schoolers. I want to talk about the book that you've written. So I've read the most recent one that is available, Middle School Superpowers. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. So um, it is it is so good. And I don't have middle schoolers. And people who've listened to the podcast uh, know that. My youngest child is 20. So I really, really wish I would have read this book, you know, 15 years ago, as my oldest child was entering middle school, I would have learned so much and would have, I feel like parented all of my kids a little bit better. Tell me what you think, and why you think that the tween middle school years are the perfect time to help kids leverage setbacks to quote you into resilience and you call middle school the age of opportunity.
1: Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yes, there's such a negative cultural rhetoric around middle school. So many people dread the phase. They dread the idea that their kids are going to become tweens. They've heard so many things about middle schoolers being mean, being drama-seeking, and all of that really doesn't set kids up to have a positive experience. And I really want to change that narrative because that's not how I see this age group at all. I see it as what I call in the book the last best opportunity because they're still at an age where they very much care what their parents think. They're still super impressionable, their brains are developing, everything is in flux and their friendship groups aren't solidified, their values aren't solidified and they're experiencing everything for the very first time. So it's hard to stay optimistic and feel resilient when you have no proof that you will come out okay on the other side. And there's so much we as parents can do to coach them rather than just taking that step back and seeing it as a time to dread.
0: That is so good because I know for me personally, when my son started struggling with mental health issues, it was in middle school. And I hear that over and over and over. I'm varying a little bit, but not so much because you do talk a lot about mental health in the book. What is it about middle school and middle schoolers and what's happening in their lives that make it such a time for mental health issues to to manifest or to show up for the first time?
1: Well, first they are experiencing every emotion on a scale of a hundred, if you have a scale of one to ten, if you have a scale of one to ten, they're experiencing it as a one hundred. They are doing it at a time when they're going through puberty, often. And even if they're not physically in puberty, their brains are already changing. The hormones are coursing. They often don't feel like themselves. They have this acute self-consciousness it's when kids start to be really aware of how well they stack up or don't stack up to others so they're easily embarrassed they start shying away from taking risks and they don't have the skills to connect with others the way they would when they're older and unlike older teens who are able to label their feelings usually are able to ask for help know to ask an adult for certain problems kids are not uh, younger teens are much less adept at identifying what's happening inside of them. They have a harder time knowing to ask for help in the first place, let alone knowing they should be asking an adult. And we really need to guide them and give them the language to know what they're experiencing and how they can get support.
0: I think you do such a good job in your book of giving those practical tips to parents, caregivers, and educators all at the same time. And I love that you have the lens of all of those things together. And and it's not, your book is not some, you know, pie in the sky heady thing that you have to keep rereading the same phrase or page over and over because you don't understand what it means. It's so accessible. And I feel like you do a really good job of, of really giving parents some of those practical tips that you're talking about the big overriding theme is resilience. So let's talk a little bit more about resilience. What is it and why is it so important for these age kids to develop moving forward?
1: I almost didn't use the word resilience Mm. in the title of this book because it had been so overused during the pandemic and it's such a misunderstood word. I think people think of resilience as being something you're born with and that the reaction to a setback correlates directly with the nature of the setback itself. When resilience really isn't about never falling down, it's about continuing to move forward when you have that kind of disappointment. And middle school is a time when kids have so many disappointments, always, throughout history, because so many things are just not going their way. It's just part of the phase. And then on top of that, we've had this societal turmoil in the last several years. We've had a global pandemic. We've had all of these once-in-a-generation experiences. And kids are doing all of this with a cell phone in their hand while going through puberty. And it's so much. That's why we're seeing that spike in mental health challenges as well, which started well before the pandemic, because life was getting complicated even before then. Exactly. You
0: talk about how being a tween, and you just mentioned this a little bit, and growing up now is so much more complicated than when we were kids and or prior generations. Can you expand on that and how parents and caregivers can help with that and how different it is yet? How can we assist during this exceedingly challenging time?
1: One of the things we need to do is approach the whole topic with some humility because we really are learning alongside our kids. This is not something we grew up with, especially when it comes to technology. And so it's not us being sage on a stage lecturing kids, and that wouldn't work anyway. What we really want to be doing is finding opportunities for them to teach us too. We can brainstorm together how we use social media in ways that serve or don't serve us. We can come up with strategies together. They might be different strategies, but it's a conversation we can have collaboratively about how to have balance in our lives, because this is not something that kids are struggling with and adults are mastering just fine. It's something all of us are trying to figure out. Absolutely. And I'll put a
0: plug in for an organization. I don't know if you're familiar with them, Screen Sanity, and they help people learn how to navigate technology and particularly in parenting their kids. And it all started, these two brilliant women started this organization because they were asking the generation ahead of them, hey, how do we do this with the phones and technology? And we all said, I have no idea because we were new into it. So i Plug Screen Sanity is an amazing resource for, for parents as well as educators. And um, I, I interviewed uh, Tracy Foster, one of the co-founders, in a, in a couple of seasons ago episode. So, FYI, as we're talking about technology, that's a, a really good resource for, for everyone. Talking a little bit more about the book, Middle School Superpowers, you, you delineate 12 different superpowers First of all, why do you call them middle school superpowers? And then what are they?
1: That's a great question. And the superpowers language is really for. Adults more than for kids. You know, I have three kids. They probably would roll their eyes at me calling them superpowers But what I'm really referencing are strengths these really and they are superpowers They are strengths that can help middle schoolers navigate the hardest times and frankly they can help anybody of any age I'm hoping parents can acquire and use some of these strategies as well. They're not intuitive to us It's not how most of us in Gen X were raised or even Millennials It's something that has really come into vogue more recently and I love that kids now trade mental health strategy tips at the lunch table it's just a totally different kind of openness and the superpowers are really geared toward the developmental phase this distinct age that middle schoolers are in and they're things like and they all are superpowers like super optimism super daring uh, super flexibility uh, super agency super security super belonging and they're geared toward things that kids in this age group struggle with. So they so badly, friendship is everything, they so badly want to fit in. And so that's why super belonging is a superpower. They're so self-conscious, they're so insecure and vulnerable, and that makes it hard for them to try new things. And that's why super daring is in there. Super optimism is because they are experiencing these setbacks for the first time. And it's easy for them to think that they'll never get back on their feet. So we wanna be teaching them how to sustain hope and humor in those hard times. And then there are a whole bunch of other ones. There's 12 in total, including super sight, which is about making good anticipatory choices is at a time when your brain isn't fully developed, and and there, there are several more. And you're exactly right
0: because when I read the book, I kept thinking I, these are tools that a person of any age. We need to have these, and you know I'm lacking in some of them. I got some wonderful hints and suggestions on how I can incorporate those in my own life. So I I don't feel like this book is is limited to parents and caregivers of middle schoolers.
1: No, I joke with my own kids that if anything happens to me, not to be too dark, but that if anything happened to me, that they could open that book, and it's like my parenting manifesto. It's really, to me, all of the things that go into having a good life, leading a good life, and a satisfied life, a meaningful life. And while those are important for any particular age group, including us as parents, as adults, they're particularly impactful for kids who are still so malleable and impressionable.
0: So what would you say to parents of high schoolers or college-age students who might be listening to this now and think,
1: oh, well, shoot, I missed the boat? You know, it's never too late. I I have a 21-year-old, and I have a 20-year-old, and I have a 15-year-old, and my 21-year-old and 20-year-old still ask me for advice, and I still have an opportunity to have conversations with them. If we're still learning as adults, of course, so are our teens and our young adults. But the earlier we can get in there and get started, the sooner that you're able to start incorporating some of these strategies and having these conversations in a way that they can actually internalize them and hear them, the more likely they are to embrace them and use them in their own lives.
0: Sometimes, Parenting can be very overwhelming, right? Uh, Actually, more than sometimes, (laughs) to be really honest. If someone's listening to this thinking, 12 superpowers, I, I can't even imagine like one. How do I incorporate all this information and how do I not miss the boat on raising my kids this way? What nugget would you give to those parents who might be feeling really overwhelmed by all of this?
1: I would say the the way the book is written, you can jump around from chapter to chapter. So I would think about what it is that your child is struggling with. Are they in a place where they need better social skills? Are they struggling with organization or executive functioning? Are they having trouble setting good boundaries with their friends and they're up really late at night trying to solve everyone else's problems? The way the chapters are organized themselves, there's specific scenarios at the top of each chapter. And those also can help clue you in to what you might need to focus on. So there's chapter that it's more about identity and neurodiversity and you can kind of figure out where you need to bolster your kids' skills and start there.
0: I really, really appreciate that because... There were some chapters that I read that I thought, okay, this doesn't necessarily, you know, thinking back when my kids were that age, like, that wouldn't have necessarily applied to this child or that child, but then I could pick out the ones, or even for myself, like, oh, this really, I need to really focus in on this, and again, as I mentioned earlier, The thing that I think is super cool about your book is it gives practical tips. Like at the end of each chapter, you have the section for parents and you have bullet points and then for educators and bullet points. What was it that made you write the book in that way?
1: So I wrote my first book in that way as well, Middle School Matters. And the reason I have written both of my books in such a practical, concrete way is because that's what I appreciate in my own life. I want... I, I, it's not that I don't like big philosophical ideas, but I want takeaways that I can go home and there are a few ways I can get a conversation started, or there is a strategy I can recommend to my kid, or maybe even just the comfort of knowing that I've tried something that didn't work and I can keep trying and try something else. And I think that's the school counselor and me too. The brief solution focused therapy, our whole job is to remove barriers so kids can get back to class as quickly as possible. And that is something that I think I carry into my writing as well.
0: And I think that because this, they're so accessible and practical yeah, you're right. Sometimes we do want to hear the, the philosophical um, research behind things and why they work. But when you've got a child who might be struggling in whatever area, and if you have children, that will happen. So FYI, spoiler alert. You want something quick. and like, I mean, not a quick fix, but like, okay, what can I actually do today that might help make a difference for my kid? And you do a great
1: job of that, Phyllis. Thank you so much. And I, I will say kids want that kind of an approach too. So when a kid comes to me and says, I'm lonely, I could have a very deep, long philosophical conversation with them about loneliness and how everyone feels lonely sometimes. And 80% of teens have reported to Pew that they feel lonely. But what they really want to know is, so how can I fix this? How can I connect with someone else? And so often the solution is, well, let's talk about how you can enter a conversation. Let's talk about how you can make sense of the social cues around you, both verbal and nonverbal. And maybe we can do something really practical, like give you, assign you a wing boy or a wing girl who can help you enter a conversation. And when you do that, in the context of also just validating how they feel, then they feel empowered. You feel a sense of agency too, because you don't feel like you're helplessly just watching them struggle. And as long as we're conveying that we may not get it right the first time, we're going to experiment, throw spaghetti at the wall until we see what sticks, then they're less likely to get frustrated if the very first strategy is unsuccessful.
0: You talk about a lot in the book about how we shouldn't be talking at our kids, we should kind of try to partner with them per se, in helping them learn how to utilize some of these skills and tactics. Can you press into that a little bit more?
1: Some of that is the nature of communication when kids hit those tween years, they often shut down. They become on the I share a story in the book about how I asked my child what he did in PE and he says he ran and I say, can you expand? And he says, around the track. That's kind of the classic example of what you might get. Also, they're completely overstimulated when they come home from school. And so when you want to have a conversation with them, often they're exhausted and need to recharge. We need to be ready to have a conversation with them on their terms when they're ready to have that conversation. And we don't want to be giving them the sense in any way that we're judging them, criticizing them, that we're disappointed in them, or that we're lecturing them because they're going to either lie to us twist themselves into a press hole to prove us wrong, or they're going to shut down. And so the best thing we can do is approach them as really mature, sophisticated experts in their own lives, ask them to tell us what they're feeling. The worst thing you can do is tell a kid how they're feeling, or you can ask them if there's anything you can support them with. And you can ask them questions that get them thinking kind of critically about what they're doing. You might make an observation like, I notice you're not yourself when you're with that friend, but you seem much more relaxed with this other friend. You know, why do you think that is? What you don't want to do is tell them who to be friends with mm. or tell them how they should feel about something.
0: And it's often such a fine line to walk as a parent, as you and I both know, just based on experience. But you also bring up some really difficult scenarios in your book, things like sexting, drugs, alcohol, all you know, all the different things that that tweens, teens can decide to experiment with. And I think sometimes as parents it can be really hard not to just respond and try to fix and discipline. In those situations. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I, I hadn't mentioned earlier one of the superpowers is super bounce, which is the ability to recover from mistakes. And they're all going to make mistakes. And I think we have to just go in to the teen and tween years knowing they're going to make mistakes. And what is our ultimate goal? Our ultimate goal is for them to learn from the mistakes so they don't make the same one again. Hopefully they make a different mistake the next time. And if they get stuck in shame, if They're overwhelmed by our emotions. They're not going to be able to focus. They're not going to be able to store that in long-term memory. It's going to be that fight-or-flight reflex that kicks in. So this isn't about not imposing consequences. It's about processing our feelings if we're not able to be calm with someone else so that when we approach our child, we can be calm. And it's about having consequences that are logical. Often you can come up with consequences with your kid too. They're, they can be harder on themselves than we are. And recognizing that they want to be a good person. They want to make good choices. They want to make their parents proud, their teachers proud. They want to do the right thing. And so we want to work together to figure out how we can bring that out of them, how we can elicit that. One of my favorite questions is, were you your best self?
0: Yes. And which is a great question for us to ask ourselves, even in different situations, right? Yeah. What would you tell parents of younger kids in regards to whether or not they should read your book right now?
1: You know, a lot of the parents in the community where I work have told me that they started reading it when their kids were in third or fourth grade. And I was so grateful because I knew that when they became my middle school students, they would be far better equipped to manage the changes. So I'm a big believer in preparing for things before you experience them. And as you said earlier, in the same way that these tips apply to older teens, they also apply to younger kids as well. I've been in a K-8 for eight years, and I can assure you that there is nothing in this book. They may not be making the same kinds of mistakes. We're not necessarily talking about social media or drinking or things like that, but all of the decision-making skills that you apply to something like drinking are the same decision-making skills that they are applying when they are deciding whether or not to tell you the truth about who broke the lamp or whether they put their own dishes away it might be something very small, but we can start those habits and patterns really young.
0: I completely agree. It was a total leading question because I think parents of any age person would um, benefit from reading your book. So, uh. Just an extra plug there. Um, Let's go back to the whole mental health uh, topic and issue, because you don't shy away from that in the book. It is a very real thing, as we talked about a little bit earlier. I'd like to ask all the guests who are experts, and I consider you an expert, when do you know that this is normal teenage behavior, in air quotes, versus a real problem that could really need some professional help.
1: So I share one story in the book where a parent said to me, uh, how do I know if I need to get my child a therapist? And my answer was yes. (laughs) Because if you're at that point where you are worried or wondering if they need that support, you should err on the side of getting them that support. It may not necessarily be a therapist, it could be a social skills group, it could be an occupational therapist, it could be an executive functioning coach, depending on what their needs are. It could be that you are sending them to a camp that has some extra support for kids who need to help connecting with others. But if you have concerns, start interviewing coaches and teachers, getting to an understanding of their world and what it looks like at school and talk to your kid about how they're feeling. You might discover that school is uh, an unhappy place, but they're really happy in another environment and what is different about those two environments? What information does that give you that you can use to help support them? Of course, if there's ever a situation where there are major changes to their activities of daily living, to things that they love. they stop doing, you know, abruptly, I'm not talking about the normal interests changing in middle school, or they suddenly stop connecting with friends or they're giving away their belongings or they have self-harm behaviors, whether it's cutting or uh, purging or eating disorders, if they're exhibiting really risky behaviors online, Uh, engaging with people who are dangerous, sending a lot of nudes, you know, anything that really raises a red flag, you do want to be getting some professional support to try to just get in there and start supporting them early, as early as possible. And I tell people all the
0: time that often the first person your child might go to is at school, either a school counselor, a teacher, a coach. That's what my son did. He went, he sent an email to a school counselor. You also yeah. talked to educators in this book like we talked about earlier and you give some great practical tips can you give us a few for the educators that uh, we have who listen to the podcast some tips on how to you know see things that might be going on with their students and how to do things that help and when to again raise the red flag like I have a big concern over this kid
1: Yes, and it's why I love team meetings in the school setting, so that lots of teachers can come together and you can start to notice patterns when you talk about kids. If somebody brings up a concern, it might make another teacher start paying more attention. I'm a big believer in teachers making coping strategies a normal part of the classroom, whether it's a jar where everyone writes down strategies that work for them, including the teacher, and people can try one of their own or someone else's. If you notice that a kid is struggling to self-regulate, address the whole class instead of that child and say, let's just take a minute to uh, you know, focus on the sounds in the room, regroup, use mindful coloring. In middle school, one of my favorite very simple strategies for teachers is to have them give kids a minute or two to just color when they first come in because going through the hallways is so overwhelming. It's like salmon swimming upstream and just giving them a chance to catch their breath and collect themselves before they have to shift gears and recognize that kids' social needs are everything. One of the stories I share in the book is a teacher who always gave kids several minutes at the end of class as long as she could get through everything she needed to teach and was very explicit in saying, I know this is what you need. I know it's important to you. And I want to honor that. Here's what I need. And that mutual respect really helped her bring out the best in her students. Mm. Yeah,
0: that's great. And I heard the saddest story yesterday about um, from a, a friend who has a n- new middle schooler just in the last few weeks. And she said, you know, my child's kind of struggling a little bit with middle school. It's just starting the teachers don't seem to be, you know, as loving as and as kind to the kids as they were in elementary, where it's, you know, you feel that kind of almost parental support and love. And she said, you know, Mom, my teachers don't really care about me.
1: Yeah, you know, that there's research I share in the book from a professor at the University of Wisconsin, Jeffrey Borman, and he wanted to address that, exact issue because some of that is the anxiety kids are bringing into the setting. So they're almost manifesting that. It's not necessarily, of course, that the teachers feel that way, but they can go into middle school feeling like they're just a number, feeling like teachers only care if they do well, that they don't see them. And the truth is they may have 100 or 150 students that they see in the course of a day. They no longer have that one teacher who knows them so well and sees them for the entirety of the day and who knows their parents and sees them at pickup. So it is a time of tremendous transition for these kids. And so what Jeffrey Borman did is he had, he did an experiment where he had kids in sixth grade read social stories that were purportedly written by former sixth graders, now seventh graders, who said, when I first got to middle school, I thought my teachers didn't care about me. I thought I was just a number. And what I realize now is that they really do care and they see me as a whole person. And in his research, he discovered that when kids read those social stories, they did better in every single way, academically, emotionally, socially. And while you're not going to give your child a fake social story from a seventh grader, what you can do is read books that have characters that they might identify to. You can have them talk to older kids in the school that you might know. You can have a school counselor hook them up with an older student who might've had a rough transition and is doing better, and just really reinforce that that those feelings are normal, they will go away, and their teachers care. And I would, as a parent, encourage your child to really get to know at least one or two adults in the building, and you can brainstorm with them who those people might be, who the most likely candidates might be.
0: And that's an excellent point, because I cannot imagine any teacher doing what they do if they don't love it, particularly now, because it's so challenging and so difficult to be a t- teacher, much less a middle school teacher, right?
1: Yeah, they, they they do, they love these kids. I mean, they get exasperated sure. and it can be challenging and confounding at times, but yes, I can say 100% the teachers who are doing this work love their students, care very deeply about them, And remember, these are middle schoolers. So if a teacher looks at them with a funny expression, the teacher could be thinking about a bill they didn't pay, but the kid is going to internalize it as the teacher hates me. And so we need to be reminding them that they can think a little bit more flexibly, help them come up with other possibilities when they go right to that worst case scenario. What else might she have been thinking about? Or does she look that way at other people too? Is it possible she was addressing the whole class and not just
0: you? And again, that's one of those applicable to any human being because how many times, you know, have I done something like that where, you know, my husband or a friend or my kids looked at me in a certain way and I thought, well, what are they, you know, why are they upset with me when they were thinking, oh shoot, I forgot to do X, Y, Z or yeah, whatever the case may be. So again, giving kids those practical tips and asking questions as opposed to, well, you need to do this and this and this and this and this.
1: That's right. That's right. It is hard because we want to give advice so badly. And we feel like we can fix their problems in 30 seconds if they just do what we say. And we may actually fix that problem. But what we don't do is shield them from the discomfort of future problems. We want to be giving them to handle those future problems independently.
0: Absolutely, because there will always be problems. That is life. And we want to be able to teach them. And equip them while they are still in our homes before they go out and launch into the rest of their lives. Exactly. So you have, like I mentioned earlier, an upcoming event um, here that is sold out. There's, um, You have a lot of great information on your website that I'm going to put in the show notes, your website, so that people can visit that. Um, do you have other upcoming events um, in any area of the
1: country that people can attend, either in person or virtually? Yeah, I'm doing a book launch on next Thursday in Washington, D.C. If anyone is living near Politics and Prose, it's at 7 p.m. on Thursday the 7th in D.C. I'll be in San Francisco the follow. i will be in Kansas City the following week, and then I'm going from there to San Francisco and then to Lake Tahoe, Nevada, and— I will be all over the country, so you can look for me on social media too, and I'll probably be sharing there where where I'll be. I would love to meet as many people as possible when I'm out, out on the road.
0: Wonderful. Phyllis, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to share with our listeners before we wrap it up?
1: Just enjoy the phase. If you do have a middle schooler, it goes so fast. I've got three kids and now three former middle schoolers. I can't believe it. And I I have such fond memories of that because they're so funny and they're so needy and they're so interactive and joyful in their own way. It's not about parenting less or taking a step back. It's just about parenting differently. That's great advice and a great
0: nugget for us to close on. Phyllis Fagel, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise on the Just a Mom podcast, and I want to make sure that everyone knows to get your books. They're available on Amazon. Uh, There's links on your website that I will put in the show notes as well to make sure that people can access these incredible tools to help with the parenting journey. Thanks so much for having me on today. Well, thanks again for being on this episode of the Just A Mom podcast. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988, I won't see you smile again, take away that pain and clouds that keep covering up the sun. I want to see smile again take away that pain in them clouds and keep covering up the sun if you found this podcast helpful please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts also please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful thanks again for listening to just a mom